Hello, and welcome to the Cynical Podcast, where we take deep dives into the shallow waters of today's star-studded films, blockbuster movies, and most hype popcorn flicks. We're your hosts, Will, Clasia, and Malika, and today we're going to be talking about Todd Phillips' Joker. <laughs> So the Joker is Todd Phillips' take on the classic Batman villain. This Joker is a much more character-driven film. It's starring Joaquin Phoenix as Arthur Fleck, the Joker. It also stars Robert De Niro as Murray Franklin, a late-night talk show host. Zazie Bates as Sophie Duman. Apparently that's how you pronounce her name. And Francis Conroy as Penny Fleck. So I guess let's do a plot overview. So this movie is about Arthur Fleck. He is a clown for hire. I guess he works for a business called Ha Ha's. And they're clowns. He is trying to garner business for some business in Gotham City. Gets mugged by some kids who steal a sign, break it over his back. He goes to psychiatrists and he feels like she's not really listening. He goes back to work. He gets given a gun by one of his coworkers. And then later he's confronted on the bus by three Wall Street guys, which I find interesting that they're Wall Street and Gotham City. It was the subway. Sorry. The yes, subway. we're from New York. It's called the subway. <laughs> from Nebraska, we just call them trains. You said bus? <laughs> oh. We don't have those either. <laughs> uh, and... Well, feel bad laughing, but they beat him up. They mug him. He turns around and with the gun he was given, shoots them. And this leads him down a path of becoming more and more unhinged. He meets someone in his building who um, he falls in love with. is a strong word, but he has feelings for clearly. He continues down his path of becoming disenfranchised with the world around him. Um, he faces more and more adversity, gets cut off from his medication, finds out from his mother that she had an affair with Bruce Wayne, or not Bruce Wayne, Thomas Wayne, who might be his father, um, goes to confront Thomas Wayne, finds out from Thomas Wayne that his mom is mentally unstable herself, and this is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back. He becomes unhinged, he murders his mother, and then after... Earlier in the movie, trying stand-up and failing badly, getting embarrassed on the Murray Franklin show. He goes to make an appearance on the show, and the big culmination, he murders the host of the late-night talk show and becomes the Joker. And a symbol for chaos in Gotham. Yeah. So, guys, let's get first impressions. What did you guys think of the movie? So, uh, this is one of the few times we've seen the movie all together, and I fucking loved it. I fucking love this movie. I, you guys, like you said, we saw it together. I walked out of the movie and mouth agape. I, I was in shock. I thought it was amazing. It was jaw dropping. This was an interesting one for me. I definitely remember thinking during the film, it's so beautiful. Joaquin Phoenix is so physical in his portrayal. There were so many amazing things. I'm still digesting. I think maybe by the end of this podcast, I'll be able to formulate an opinion. So yeah, we saw this movie in the last five days. And I think 
we didn't know what to expect. The trailer is going to give much away. So I think a lot of how you feel about this movie maybe has to do with the hype around it, your own expectations of it being a comic book movie or, you know, whatever, and how that kind of stacked up by the time you saw the movie. Yeah, especially because when you think about movies you're excited to go see, you look at the cast, you look at the writers, you look at the directors, and Todd Phillips, writer-director of this movie, known mostly for slapstick, crazy comedies. I mean, his most famous movie is undoubtedly The Hangover. He's also writer-director of The Hangovers 2 and 3, Road Trip, Due Date with Zach Galifianakis, and this is... This could not be a more different movie than his prior work. Yeah, it's such a departure that of what you'd expect of Todd Phillips as a director. Because like Will said, he's been around for about a little about around 20 years, I think, at this point, directing films for Hollywood. And every single thing that he's done up until this point, with maybe the exception of War Dogs, which I believe was his last movie, um, has been the epitome of, you know, comedy. There's not been that much of an emphasis on direction. It's been more about the script and the actors than the the movie being more than some of its parts, I would I would say. And same with the cine- cinematographer, right? Like he's done mostly movies with Todd Phillips and not these art house beautifully um framed movies. So it's been it yeah, definitely was not what we expected. And this is one of the few movies that I actually hadn't seen the trailer before. I love a good trailer. Um and this one I just hadn't seen. So I I, I kind of like that though. I came into it completely blind and just let the movie unfold in front of me. And I think that's part of the reason I need a little bit more time to digest because I didn't come in with any expectations. Cinematographer Lawrence Share. So shout out to you, Lawrence Share. Did a great job. Great job. I, I literally, every single establishing shot of this movie, I was like, make this a poster. It was fantastic. It was really beautiful. <laughs> there are two versions of the movie. There's the traditional, just digital format presentation of the movie. When we went and saw it together, we saw it, the 35 millimeter film version. Really, we had no idea what to expect out of the 35 millimeter or what the difference was. Except that it cost more money. It cost a few yeah. extra bucks. Thanks for that upcharge, Alamo Draft House. Looking for sponsors? Just Honestly, saying. shout out Alamo love, Draft House. We love you. Please seriously sponsor us. Sponsor us, <laughs> Alamo Draft House. The 35 millimeter, though, it really added to that effect. So this movie takes place in what we're estimating the late 70s. Um, and it really gives you that feel of a different era. The projector actually used film, and you can see that in the screen in front of you. There's some um, graininess to what you see, kind of shakes with how the reel is moving through it, but it adds to that old-timey feel, that kind of grunge, I want to say. A little bit unpolished somehow adds to the polish of this almost period piece. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... So I don't know if maybe there's a phrase for that um, era of filmmaking of, you know, late 70s. So you have Marty Scorsese and all these other directors kind of coming up around the same time that it was actually a huge departure than the standard studio fair of the 60s before it. And the 70s was really the uh, advent of auteur filmmaking. So it felt like a throwback to that, especially like the kind of grimy New York, LA, Chicago setting that you would expect from a, a 70s film. And also, what did you guys think of the the title treatment? That was also old timey. Yeah, and it had so he it opened with Joaquin Phoenix as Arthur Fleck um, spinning a sign, trying to get business into I don't even know what he was spinning this sign for, but 
there was a man playing the old timey piano out oh, on yeah. the street. I forgot as about the that. Kids come up and it really in the title treatment, like you said, it was in an old fashioned kind of script. like Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, yeah, almost like and even with the sign twisting, yeah. like the tramp. Like we just it definitely harken back to that kind of feeling. So that's a nice segue to Joaquin Phoenix, his portrayal of the Joker. You know, we're probably going to get into later this Joker compared to other Jokers, but just wanted to start with Joaquin and what he did in this film. I thought he was fantastic. He was incredible. You know, when you talk about physicality and acting and physical performances, a lot of the times you tend to lean to looking at comedians like Will Ferrell, yep. right? Comedians, Chris Farley, yeah. somewhat over the top, over kind of, the yeah. top. But this was such a visceral, like physical performance in a serious drama. I don't know what the heck might be wrong with Joaquin Phoenix's shoulder, but it looks like it's dislocated. Yes. He's rail thin. The whole time he's on screen, he's moving and contorting his bodies in such a natural way, but it gets such a reaction out of everyone who I talked to who saw this movie. Yeah, and I feel like it's a choice that works. So a lot of times in movies like this, you know, it's like we said, it's very art house type of movie. There's a lot of directorial choices, a lot of acting choices, and they don't always come off. And for the most part, everything Joaquin Phoenix did to me came off, right? It was pitch perfect. It made sense for the world, for the character, for his mental state and the, the various scenes. So it never took me out of the movie. If anything, it, it like enraptured me more into that scene because I just couldn't look away. Right. It wasn't distracting. It just fortified the character and even just like running down the street oh, you know, it's like yes. oh wow i can i get to know arthur a little bit more just the the way one foot is put in front of the other and that laugh let's talk about that laugh we cannot talk about this movie without talking about that laugh i thought that was such a unique unexpected but honestly perfect character choice for any joker that the laugh is a neurological disorder that he can't control because any Joker movie you see when he laughs like crazy, you just kind of want to write it off as he's crazy, he's insane, he's off his rocker. But when they give it kind of an origin as a neurological disorder from what we later find out is some past physical trauma, but it is, it's such a creative way to, you know, not everything needs to be grounded in real life, but it gives it more of a, you know, digestible story how that laugh and where that laugh comes from and the clown makeup there's an origin story there why does he dress himself up like a clown why does he call himself the joker they folded all of those little details in so well it didn't feel as forced as you would think yeah it's hard to explain but you can tell the care that went into every single choice that this film took and regardless of whatever you feel it added or detracted from the movie the fact is that there wasn't any detail that was an afterthought. I, I definitely looked at this movie as like, this is a, a, a passion project. The people in this movie care. This is not a paycheck for Joaquin Phoenix. It's not just a pay, paycheck for Todd Phillips. You can tell there's an element of care and passion and just deep understanding of the, the pathos and everything that goes into this. And totally agree to your point. And Malika, tying back to what you were saying about the intro title and music seeming like something from the silent film era 
with Charlie Chaplin, there's no doubt in my mind that it was not a throwaway mistake that when Joaquin Phoenix went to the theater house during the protest to confront Thomas Wayne, they're watching, was it City Lights? Um, Modern Times, it was Modern Times. They're watching Charlie Chaplin's Modern Times. Not only because they tied back to that music and that title card feel, but also, you know, that's an era of physical performance. They can't come across with dialogue or speech. It's all physical presence on screen. And that, I remember thinking the first time watching this, because I actually saw it twice, but the first- Without us, by the way, the second (laughs) second time. time without us. Rude. The first time watching this, I remember thinking, I feel like 90% of this movie, you could take out dialogue and it would be just as powerful. Wow. That's what I, that's how much I thought that like, Joaquin Phoenix physical performance was so moving. That's such a good point too, because there's actually very little dialogue in the opening scenes of the movie. So when you see uh, Joaquin Phoenix, he's at his uh, therapy session and there's some dialogue there, but it's very stilted. And then you see him at work, putting on his makeup, getting ready, um, going to work. Um, You see him having the sign stolen by the boys and him chasing them. And all of that, all of those scenes take place with no real words. I think Joaquin Phoenix maybe asked them to stop or at some point, but so much of the the gravitas around that scene is in the performance and the physicality. And like you can well, it's take, other it's other characters talking, yes, but, in, but not Joaquin as much. Right, yeah, right. Going back to your point about the silent film era and Charlie Chaplin and how a lot of this pays homage to that, I think that was a very specific choice that the director made. And I think it totally pays off. So let's talk about how this movie ties into the greater DC universe and the Batman universe. This movie, I feel, would have been exactly the same had there been no Batman or DC tie-in. It's really just a, a character study about a man with mental illness who becomes unhinged and disenfranchised with society. It works nicely with the story of the Joker and it works well as an origin for the Joker, but it really is a standalone story in and of itself. Yeah, yeah agreed. And those beats where it does become origin stories, like we mentioned before, like this is where the makeup comes from. This is where the laugh comes from. This is where the death of um, Thomas Wayne fits in and all of that and the chaos in, in Gotham ends up almost being like Easter eggs. Like, oh, that met, that's where that is. And oh, it's almost like little treats for people who know Batman, love Batman, that story. But as you said... If you, even if you don't know the Joker, I think you still appreciate the movie um, for its own merits. Yeah. And one thing we talked about in, immediately in the aftermath of having watched the movie is this, its similarities to Taxi Driver. And in general, there's a lot of homage to films of that era, obviously. But very specifically, the beats of something like Taxi Driver, which, again, if you look at the, the escalation of that is a mentally fragile man there is a romance, there is an escalation, there is the acquisition of firearms, and then there is a kind of culminating violent moment that kind of leaves you wondering, what does this all mean? Um, but yeah, it's it's absolutely a character study, and I think that's what is so enjoyable about it, because if you look at it in frame of, we've had so many versions of Batman, so many versions of the Joker, just so many, so many times we've entered this world through film, through TV, and this felt like a fresh take in a way that a lot of that other stuff didn't. Yeah, this movie definitely wore its influences on its sleeve. You mentioned Taxi Driver. Obviously, a lot of people have been following along with the dialogue with this movie. 
know that King of Comedy has been talked about, especially with Robert De Niro. Um, and actually, I think it paid homage to The Dark Knight a little bit. The scene where he's in the back of the cop car mm. driving away and his head against the window. I immediately got the callback of Heath Ledger hanging out the side of the cop car driving down downtown Chicago where that scene was filmed. It Just the way the light is reflecting off the windows and the nighttime and the city lights, it definitely gave me a callback to that dark night, um, which I think is actually a nice segue into how this Joker fits in the lore of Batman and other Jokers that came before it. Um, something I thought really is that this is really a different take on the Joker because the Joker throughout history has always been, as much as you hate to say it, a charismatic character that was part of the appeal of the Joker, right? Is that he's unhinged and he is violent and terrible, but there's something about him that you like. There's something about him that is appealing to people that make them want more. This is one of the first times I've seen the Joker portrayed and no one wanted anything else to do with it. I, everyone I've talked to who has seen this movie has come out saying, that guy is completely crazy. It made me feel uncomfortable. It was great, but it made me feel weird. I feel bad, but I don't feel bad. People don't know how to react to this portrayal of the Joker, which I thought was really interesting. But do you think part of the reason it feels so different is that the Joker has never been able to be the protagonist before. And did you catch yourself at some moments, even knowing where this movie is going to lead you, rooting for him? You know, when he's when people are abusing him, when people are being mean beyond what's normal, don't you want like, oh, I wonder if he'll survive this moment. I felt myself rooting for him. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, especially because this is a portrayal that's the escalation of a series of moments and a series of um, betrayals and, and things that he uncovers about himself and his past. And I think the Joker that you encounter at the beginning of the movie has come a million miles from the Joker that is at the end of the movie. And one thing to consider is that this takes place in a very short period of time. There's no um, time cards or anything like that to give you a sense of how long it's been. But if you kind of just follow the natural progression of the events, it seems like from the moment that he gets the gun and then confronts the Wall Street guys that were um, harassing him on the train and shoots them, it's only been a few weeks of escalation um, because the police are still very early in their investigations of the crime. And there's like newspaper articles that come out and then he meets Zazie Bates' character. Um, he finds out from his mother by reading her letters that Thomas Wayne is his father, or so he thinks. Like all of this happens, I would be very surprised if this took place in more than two months, to be Definitely. honest. And Malika, to your point, there's really nothing to root for, which is just the total sadness of this movie. He doesn't really have anything he's trying to achieve. He's just a man kind of floating through a... Survival. Right, right. It's a sad, terrible existence. And you really feel bad for him. But then you go from feeling bad for him to not being able to pull for him. And so I think it's compelling in that sense where you understand how this specific character got to where he is. I mean, I've never gone through what he's gone through, obviously. So I guess I couldn't relate and I felt for him, but I never was rooting for him, if that makes sense. Maybe it's yeah. because we came in with the pretense knowing that this is- Right, Joker. right. And I, and I totally hear what you're saying. 
And I think that that's like sort of the neat trick of this movie is they took such an iconic villain, the Joker, that has rarely in the past invoked any sympathy and made us feel bad for him. They explained things like the fact that he was abused by his mother, the fact that he wanted to be on medication, but the system kind of didn't care about him and how people who he trusted and liked, like his friend who gave him the gun, just turned on him, you know, time and time again, when he just wanted to be, just live his own little existence, wasn't really allowed to. It created a, you know, when I say root for, sure, I'm not saying like I want the Joker to kill everybody in Gotham and, and be the hero of the story, but I wanted him to survive each moment that he was thrown into because he, you know, he was the victim. Yeah, for sure. He he had a lot to overcome. And you brought up a good point, Malika, because at no point in this movie do any of the significant people in his life actually help him. And by that, I mean, the one time that he thinks that someone is looking out for him in the beginning, which is the coworker giving him the gun, it immediately becomes a betrayal. And this person is bad mouthing him and like immediately says that that Arthur tried to sell him a gun. So it's not even like people are leaving him alone. They are almost actively doing things to to uproot him and uproot his sense of self. Who's And he's already a fragile person. And then you have obviously individuals that are either disappointing him or hurting him in some way. And you have an institution that does not care and cuts off his treatment, cuts off his medication. He has nowhere to go. So you have to imagine, even if you've never been in that position, how would you feel if it felt like every force in your life was against you, not that you were invisible, but that literally every time you tried to live your life and be a good person, because up until the point when he killed those three men or he killed anyone else, there was a lot of time from the first murders to the next. He didn't relish in the murders because he didn't want to, not because he wasn't capable of it, but he, he kept trying to overcome that. And he even says at some point, I wanted to feel bad. But everything around him just forced his hand, at least from his perspective, that's not what I'm saying. But it felt like it forced his hand of like, I've been trying to become a better person out of this. And literally every single turn, I've been rebuffed. Right. And just to be clear, we're not condoning violence at all. And that's not at all what we're saying. So when I talk to people who saw this movie, other than these two. (laughs) Wow, you have other friends? (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. What? (laughs) Uh, this so when I saw the movie the second time, I talked to those who I saw it with afterwards, and they not talked about the not my friends. <laughs> Just kidding, guys. I love you. So they talked about how they felt uncomfortable with how much he enjoyed the violence and how much he enjoyed committing the crimes. But I don't really think he did. I think he felt so alone and lost in the world, and he just felt nothing. He had nothing to turn to, nowhere to go. And it's just something to him that happened. He did it. It happened. And like you said, he wanted to feel bad. But I don't think he felt anything in the world he was in. The position he was in, he was so lost that it just happened. And he didn't think much of it. Yeah, agreed. Especially if you look into the context of when he's first getting uh, his prescription at his therapy session. And he says it's because, you know, he just feels numb. Like he feels nothing. And I don't think that ever changed. Powerful line. He said he didn't know he existed. He used to not know if he existed until he murdered those three people on the subway. Because yeah. one thing to keep in mind, too, is the reaction to the subway murders. So obviously one of the through lines through this plot is no one knows who committed those murders. And it becomes like this galvanizing moment for the disenfranchised of Gotham 
and there are two detectives who are looking for the culprit. So they do eventually kind of land on Arthur because there's a lot of breadcrumbs there. It's pretty easy to trace back to him. But in the in the interim, while this is being reported on the media, while it's on the news, it's in the papers, the way that it's being portrayed is that the people of Gotham who feel like they're they're nothing, they feel like they're the bottom of the barrel, they identify with this man, and that's probably the first time he has felt seen, and it's literally for something he did that he cannot even claim. So that's a really powerful moment for him where he feels like, I can claim this. Yeah, and it is super interesting that he does, at the end of the movie, become this great icon for chaos, yet... All of the murders, except for the very last one where he murders his nurse in order to escape, there have all been people who specifically did something to hurt him or to betray him. Um, but yet the chaos and the murder and the violence that he becomes an icon for is sort of without reason. Yep. Yeah, this movie has a little bit of controversy surrounding it. Mixed reviews from some critics who are thinking more of kind of the social impact of this movie and what it have might have on some people. I can understand where those criticisms are coming from. I don't personally think it glorifies violence in any way or romanticizes mental illness. The one scene where I thought it could have been handled a little better was at the end when he stands up on the cop car and he smears the blood on his face into his smile um, and the crowd around him is cheering him on. Personally, if I were making the movie, the choice I would have made is have just general chaos in the background and him relishing in the chaos of the world and everything around him that stemmed from him and reflected his own life rather than having... Like worship. Worship, right. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the one thing where I thought, you know, that could have been handled differently and maybe a little better. And like Will was mentioning, obviously, it's a ton of controversy. I don't think, at least personally, I don't feel uh, as qualified to touch on some of the subjects. Because a lot of this is, it's really heavy stuff. It's really important stuff. Um, But one thing I will say is that one area of the film I felt like could have been improved is I don't quite understand Todd Phillips' perspective on some of these topics like mental health, like capitalism, like fascism. So... One improvement that I would have liked to have seen from this movie, and maybe that stems from some of those scenes, like we'll mention, of there seemed to be some adulation for the Joker's actions. Um, the film, I don't think, took a stance one way or the other. And for some people, that's something they like. They like to maybe have that interpretation open for themselves. But for me, and I think this kind of harks back to something that Will has brought up as well, is if this is a director, a director's interpretation of a work of a character, especially a character that exists already, this is not an original character, um, I would like to know what their perspective is and what their take is on some of these topics that they're talking about. And I think this is a take on the Joker that's a little bit more grounded in, like I said earlier, reality, where this is a thought process of, how could someone get to this point in today's world? And just one final note on this. I don't think the Joker is supposed to be a reflection of reality. I think some of the harshest parts of our realities are reflected in the Joker, though. That's kind of words, scrambled eggs. But what I'm trying to say is that throughout history, the Joker has taken realities people face and use that to influence how the Joker acts. In the 90s and kind of the peak of Wall Street and luxurious wealth, the Joker was 
uh, wealthy, rich mobster. In 2008, when we had just faced a financial crash, the Joker was an anarchist, an agent of chaos, someone who just wanted to create societal unrest. Yeah, I mean, he burned a stack of money because he could. And in this one, it's very timely that there's a lot of tension between the upper and lower classes of our world. And mental illness is kind of being brought to the forefront of what something a lot of people are facing today. And I think that is kind of what inspired this interpretation of the Joker. It's not reflective of what everyone who's going through this feels like, but it's a take that today's realities are reflected in this Joker. I mean, people talk all the time, like, oh, I can't even watch the news anymore. There's always something. So I definitely feel like there was some commentary there. And I, I see what you mean, Clay, that you wanted to feel more of a perspective from Todd Phillips. I think he chose what he wanted to give a perspective on. Like there was some of that, the societal unrest that we all kind of feel that's going on right now with, you know, the the president we have in office and other things going on in the world, but other things like mental illness, he kind of chose to just be part of the origin story. So, I mean, that was a filmmaking choice, right? Agreed. And when it comes down to it, it's the Joker. That's something we all have to keep in mind with this movie is it's not trying to be, it is trying to be something beyond your typical comic book movie, but when you boil it down, it's still the story of the Joker. So let's tie it back to that. Let's talk about this movie in respects to the Batman universe and the Joker and Batman and the origin of this character. So there were some really cool, unique twists to the origin story of the Joker that I really appreciated. The real new part to the story that this movie brought was the possibility of the Joker being Bruce Wayne, Batman's half-brother. What did you guys think of that story little nuance? Yeah, I really loved it personally because mostly because I didn't see it coming. Like, obviously, this movie is Joker as the protagonist, and it takes place in the world of Gotham, obviously in a different time than some of the previous uh, Batman movies or Batman-related movies have taken place. Um, but I was interested to understand how the Wayne family played a part and obviously how Bruce Wayne and Batman would eventually play a part. And having Thomas Wayne be more of the focus than Bruce, I thought was a really great choice. Because if you look at Batman's origin, Thomas and Martha Wayne aren't people. They're figures. They are the symbol of a childhood ruined, a traumatic experience, you know, some sort of loss. But outside of people that maybe read some of the comics, you don't get a sense of who these people were. And from a child's perspective, because keep, keep in mind, when they die, Bruce Wayne's very young, you're going to idolize your parents. But who are they as people? And I like the choice of Thomas Wayne being a dick, being a capitalist, being the type of person that the, that the disenfranchised of Gotham were actively rooting against because it actually made him more complex and interesting as a character than just, oh, Batman's father who died in an alley. And it set up this future obsession with Batman and, and Joker. Like they become main, they're like each other's nemesis, right? And so the Joker's maybe a little obsessed with Batman because he got the father and the family that he never had. And maybe Batman's a little obsessed with the Joker because the chaos that the Joker created is what, killed his parents. And so it really set that up without, you know, having to go beyond that. Yeah, I thought it was 
an amazing twist to the story. I'm not as tied to any sort of comic origins or how things really should be or are in comics. I love the twist. And Clacia, to what you were saying, I thought it was awesome how Thomas Wayne was a dick. Like in the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, any flashback they have of Thomas Wayne, he's almost this comically angelic, philanthropic, perfect shining symbol of what's right with the world, which you can understand coming from the perspective of Bruce Wayne, of a young kid who doesn't know anything else from his parents. But it also is a great reflection of how other people may have seen him. And who knows? You know, this story is from the perspective of the Joker. Maybe Thomas Wayne in this story was that guy. Probably not, considering he punched the Joker in the face when he was just a man looking for his father figure. But it was a really different take on Thomas Wayne showing him as this big, mean, powerful, rich asshole. <laughs> no, totally true. And what was interesting is they preserved that angelic view of Thomas Wayne because the mom, um, Arthur's mom saw him that way. And he kept being like, oh, Thomas Wayne should be mayor. He's the best man. He's the greatest. And she used to get so excited when he saw him on TV. So by using her, they were able to sort of show that outside of, you know, what the reality is of what he was, he was, he was a jerk, as you guys said, um, that other people still saw him as um, this amazing guy. Yeah, Malika, that's such a great point because I love that. It's, it's like Todd Phillips knows what our expectations was and he's flipping it. So we, the first introduction we get to Thomas Wayne is the perspective of Arthur's mom, Penny. And then we don't learn until over time. And this correlates with Arthur becoming more unhinged and him kind of unraveling the mystery of his childhood. And you learn all these things about Thomas Wayne. And there's no point in the reveal that I'm like, oh, I'm disappointed. I'm like, yeah, this makes sense. Everything that you've seen about Thomas Wayne outside the lens of Penny Fleck definitely contributes to the perspective of him being a dick, being a capitalist. And this is just me on my soapbox. I don't believe there's any benevolent billionaire. I don't think it's possible. I don't think you can accrue that level of wealth and power and truly be connected to the people that are you are claiming to want to help. I think there's always going to be that disconnect. Maybe you're not a, a dick in the way that Thomas Wayne is of punching a clearly mentally unwell man, but I don't think it's possible for you to be connected to people when you have elevated yourself to that status. What's interesting about both the origin stories of Batman and the Joker, and actually a lot of villains and superheroes in comic books is there's a lot of tragedy in the beginning, and then it's a choice that is made later. Like Bruce Wayne saw his parents get murdered in an alley he could have then become unhinged himself and, you know, gone a different path. Instead, he chose to dedicate his life to saving people and trying to help Gotham. Um, Superman, you know, was sent to Earth after losing his family. Uh, Spider-Man lost his uncle. So there's a lot of tragedy and there's a choice being made. And so it was interesting that they had that moment in the movie, because I think that you could have easily, to Will's point earlier, this could have been a movie about anybody. So you didn't even have to mention the Waynes or um, show that iconic scene where he, he sees his parents get killed. And you, you, I think it would have been okay if you hadn't left it, but it was an interesting moment because it says, okay, here, here's the moment where um, Bruce is going to become who he is, and this is the where, moment where Joker is going to become who he is. Malika, I think you've changed my mind about something because I think, to your point, that adding that moment and adding that scene of the Waynes being murdered in front of Bruce 
throughout the chaos of the riots after the Joker uh, shoots Murray Franklin. I think that is a choice. And I think this is my interpretation with us having just talked through it. I think that is actually what Todd Phillips is trying to get across. I think ultimately this is a movie about choice and consequences. And I think him incorporating the scene with Bruce. And obviously if you follow the lore of the comic books, we believe that young Bruce will grow up into Batman and make that choice to fight for good versus descend into that chaos. And I think that is what makes him a mirror of Joker and Arthur. And it's probably what uh, Todd Phillips is really trying to get across is that there are things that happen to people that are outside of your control, but at some point you have to make a choice. Yeah, I love that. And something I really loved about seeing this movie at Alamo Drafthouse, once again, shouts out to Alamo Drafthouse, sponsor us. sponsor us. Sponsor us, Alamo Drafthouse. But before the movie, they did a 17-minute kind of pre-roll of someone narrating and explaining the history of the Joker throughout all of media through comics and film and TV. Um, you can find it on YouTube if you just look up Alamo Drafthouse Joker. But something they talked about was in the comics, the origin story of the Joker, his first origin story, where he had a wife and a daughter who died tragically. And then through some unfortunate circumstances and, I don't know, I think a chemical infection falling into a vat of chemicals which is that's such used. a typical superhero yeah, that's where comic gets, book <laughs> just throw them in a vat of chemicals right that's where it gets a little campy but um the wife and daughter dying tragically is kind of what leads him to become unhinged and i thought it was a really cool way they turned that on its head and almost tied that origin story into this movie because though he didn't have a wife and daughter the Sassy Bates character and her daughter kind of played a proxy to that. And though in this movie it ended up being an aberration for him and not reality, you almost felt that throughout the movie because you don't know until much later that that's not reality. You don't know that it's only happening in his mind. So you feel like he has this one person that is there for him and is supporting him through his hard times. And then you finally see that was never actually there. He never had that. I mean, that's the the thing though, right? Reality took away his his, you know, love interest and her daughter. The real world did that. I mean, in his mind, they were together. She was there supporting his stand-up comedy. They joked about um, stuff over fries or whatever they were eating, you know? And then the reality set in and it was it wasn't true and that that's the tragedy of that. Yeah, that I thought that was such a powerful reveal. Like in a movie that obviously has so many great moments, to me that was that might have been my favorite moment in terms of like this was a a moment I didn't expect. Um, it was it was something that I felt actually changed the film for the better, and that that reveal to me makes me understand Arthur Fleck's point of view more so than almost any of the other actions that he took leading up to that point. And actually, for me, the scariest moment of the movie is when Arthur breaks into Zazie Bates's house, and that's when the reveal happens. And he's just like, I think he's wet from being in the rain. He's sitting on her couch. It's a very slow movement. He's like touching things in her house. And at this time, the audience doesn't know what's happening. They don't know that um, that all of their relationship has been in his mind the whole time. And then she comes out in her pajamas and is like, I have a, my daughter is sleeping in her room. And I don't know, maybe it's being a female who lives alone, but I've, I was, I felt the fear that she felt. I absolutely agree with you. I think that might've been, 
outside of the bloody murders, the most terrifying part of that movie to me. Just so everyone knows, we're also pronouncing her name Sase Bates because we saw on her Instagram that's how you actually pronounce her name. So shots out Sase Bates, sponsor us. Uh, also, what a beautiful woman, I have oh to say. She God. was gorgeous She on was film. phenomenal in her limited capacity in this I have film. to say, I was totally duped in this movie. First, during the movie, I was thinking, why is this stunning woman with this total creep and weirdo? Why is she hanging out with him? There's no way she would actually be interested in him. And then in the scene where he entered her apartment and was, you know, after an emotional scene... I think he just killed his mother. At he had that just point, right? killed his mother. He walks into her apartment. He sits down after walking through the rain, and she's taken aback and shocked to see him there. And asks, "Who are you? Don't you live down the hall? Why are you here?" I was thinking to myself, "Why is she saying these things?" I thought the same thing, and then it didn't really hit me until she said, um, "Do you need me to call someone for you? Is your mother home?" Yeah, it's because same. there had been a scene earlier because the mother had suffered a stroke. And there was a scene in which Arthur had imagined Sase Bates' character being there with him in the hospital. So that was the first moment that I realized, holy crap, none of this was real. This is a straight Sixth Sense type moment. I was like, I'm all, I'm all in at that point. And the other thing that I thought worked really well with that whole flipping his imagined relationship on his head is throughout the movie when he's becoming more and more... We keep on using this phrase unhinged, but it's really the only way to describe it. The more he's getting deeper into his mental delusions the only string of hope that you have is okay he has this stunning woman who's there for him and who's supporting him and he has at least something to fall back on in her and then when you finally feel like he's going back to her as someone to fall back on you get slapped across the face with nope this was all an illusion as well yeah definitely the thing though that was a little off-putting for me is that as much as I love that reveal, everything that happened afterwards, I was questioning. So when he gets a call from the booker for Robert De Niro's um, late night host's show, I'm like, is that really happening? Because that is his dream. He and his mom watch the show every night. He wants to be a stand-up comedian. And so I'm not sure, is this real? Is he actually going to be on the show? And so I was like, at that point, I was just like so confused. I was like, what am I missing? Are there signs? And yeah, it made me question if anything was actually real. And it's not that it it took me out of the film in any way. It just made me more anxious. But I think that was okay because this is the point where this is like the crescendo of the movie. You know, he finally gets on the show and you're like, where is this going? What's going to happen? And you can kind of guess that there's going to be some violence because that's been sort of the cadence of this film at this point. But um, that uncertainty added to the feeling of chaos of the film. Yeah, I definitely agree with that about now questioning every moment, every choice and decision that Arthur makes after that point. And there's a couple of moments that we can kind of talk about, but one that I think is super important um, that kind of loops us back to the origin story of the Joker and how this all fits in is that after Arthur murders his mother he takes a photo from her nightstand, I believe, or her dresser, and there's an inscription on the back that it seems as if it's written by Thomas Wayne, but I think the audience is kind of led to believe that maybe it was his mother in her, just, um, in her state of obsession with Thomas Wayne that she wrote that herself. So I like to pose that question to you guys. Do you think that the inscription on the back of that photograph was actually Thomas Wayne, or was it Penny um, at the height of her delusions um, pretending as if Thomas Wayne was writing to her. I think it was Penny. I think it probably was Penny, but there's definitely the door open that 
hurt that Penny and Thomas Wayne had this relationship. The other reason why I think that is because in the scene when they're in the bathroom at the showing of the Chaplin movie, Joaquin Phoenix, Arthur Fleck, says to Thomas Wayne, who's played by Brett Cullen, look at us, we look alike. And I think they did a really good job of actually finding two people who really do look alike. I think Thomas Cullen and Joaquin Phoenix, they look like they there's it a possibility they yeah, could be related. Sure. Yeah, I definitely agree. So the door is open. The door is definitely open. So one final thing I wanted to touch on, there wasn't a whole lot of soundtrack choice in this, but the places where they did choose to use a soundtrack or existing songs for the most part i thought worked really well they used the uh here come the clowns by is that was it frank sinatra it sounded like a rat pack yeah i yeah. believe so here come the clowns with frank sinatra the that's life that was the soundtrack to the murray franklin show and the last song they used when he's leaving the room where he was talking to the nurse after he murdered her and the sun is shining through the Window of the Insane Asylum. I thought that was a wonderful use of soundtrack. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, and on top of the the soundtrack choices, um, the score was phenomenal. So you get a lot of the the music evoking the emotion of the scene. And it, it never seemed like too much. I liked the way it fit into the overall just structure of the film. It didn't overpower it when it needs to be acquired a moment and it fulfilled it filled through the scene in the moments where it needed to happen so like right when um i think it's when he um he's realizing that his relationship with sase bates was a a fantasy there's a little bit of an uneasy i don't know if it was a violin but there's like an uneasy just notes happening like some sort of minor chords as the slow reveal and you get the flashbacks of the moments that he thought they spent together and you see him by himself I thought that was a phenomenal choice. The one that I didn't like as much was when he was coming down the stairs when he's fully in the Joker getup and he's dancing. I loved how that scene was shot. I thought going tying it back to Joaquin Phoenix's physical performance, you see the confidence and the way he carries himself out of his apartment into the elevator down those steps. He feels like he's born again as a different person as this Joker. But the soundtracks felt so out of place there to me with the da dun da dun da dun da dun. It felt triumphant, hey. right? It felt I like. I liked it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I personally think it felt like this is the music that Arthur would be playing for himself. In this moment, that's how he feels. So the music, were, and when they had a song choice, or even when there was an underlying score, it felt like. For what Arthur was feeling and what he was going through, it felt like the appropriate choice for him. And I can see the disconnect for the viewer of like, wait, he just murdered all these people and and he's clearly now become completely disen- like disengaged from trying to be a you know a, a contributing member of society. But for him, this was his this was his coming out moment. It was because the world saw him as a joker with a lowercase j and now he's going to become joker with a capital j right this is like the moment that he's reclaiming that name and it is triumphant so i like the music agree with you beautifully shot scene with him in the suit and very reminiscent of the clothing of you know jack nicholson um joker to me and the cops up in the you know the far right corner so there it was just a beautifully shot scene and i i thought the music worked there and just tying back there to the 
physical performance of Joaquin Phoenix, the way he's so awkward and almost misshapen throughout the whole movie, but then walks with confidence out of his apartment. He dances when he's on the Murray Franklin show in the background. He's striking a pose before he walks out on scene. He comes out with a little twist and introduces himself to Murray. He's got a little pep in his step. He's got a little bit of, you know, what he's talking to Murray. He keeps on saying, Murray. How does that feel, Murray? He feels his presence on this earth for the first time. Right. And... Not that the way he was feeling was anything admirable, but it made for a real characterization of Arthur Fleck and the Joker in that moment. Yeah, it felt like so many elements of this movie were deliberate, right? The music, as you guys mentioned before, was very deliberate. The way they had Joaquin Phoenix play this character is very deliberate. The origin stories and how they left certain scenes um, off scene, right? Like you don't know what happens to the woman who lives down the hall with and his young daughter. You don't necessarily see wh- how the nurse is murdered or how he escapes. There's certain things that you just kind of like, you know what, I don't need to see that. It's part of the mystery of it. But those are all very deliberate choices. I don't think those were scenes that they had filmed and um, left on the cutting room floor. I could be wrong, but that's it didn't feel like, um, oh, let's just trim it for time. Agreed. I definitely agree with that assessment. Actually, time is something I'd love to talk about quickly, is what did you guys think of the pace? I think most of us felt after we saw it originally that it moved a little slow the first time. And I think that's kind of playing on expectations. I don't know if this was deliberate, but going in, you you know this is a movie about the Joker. It's a comic book movie. It ties back to Batman. And you expect kind of a more high-voltage action, more... I don't know, high intensity scenes, but really it's a slow character study. Um, I'll let you guys give your impressions of the first time viewing it before I go into how I felt seeing it the second time. Yeah, I definitely agree with that assessment. And if you think about it, the, the most explosive scene early in the movie is him being beaten up. And there's actually very little sound happening. You get the sound effects and I guess the foley of the boys kicking at him and the sign but there's not a ton of sound design happening. There's not a ton of like, it feels like this is just some guy getting his ass kicked. That's the first big action part of this movie. And then it's very methodical. It's very slow. And up until the the murder of the three Wall Street guys on the subway. So I think they pick their moments well. I'm like, if we're going to have action, we're going to have tension, we're going to have a uh, thriller. They did it in a very methodical way that I thought worked for the pacing of the movie. Did I expect the pacing of the movie? No. But once I was in the theater, I was like, I'm invested. Yeah. Uh, and especially the the beating up scenes. The first time he gets beat up, he doesn't do anything about it. He just lays there. Second time he gets beat up, he strikes back. So it was like a fool me once, shame on me, fool me twice, shame on you situation. Um, I did have moments where I was like, oh man, this movie's still going. Even though I, I really enjoyed watching it. As I said multiple times already, like it was really beautifully shot and there were so many great elements. It was just a tad slow for me. And I think that even if they just trimmed little scenes here and there, just shaved off 10, 15 minutes, it could have been tighter. I agree that it maybe could have been tighter with, you know, if this movie was two hours and two minutes, if it was maybe an hour 45 or an hour 50, it probably would have felt a little bit tighter. However, I went through the second time when I watched it, trying to watch with a more critical eye, where could this have been trimmed down? And the only scene that I felt could have been taken out and have essentially the same feel throughout the movie 
was the scene where Joker Arthur Fleck goes to Bruce Manor and interacts with Bruce Wayne. But I felt like that was there for a reason. One, they needed to tie it to the greater Batman universe. And then it definitely, if this has any sort of tie back to Matt Reeves' Batman that's going to be starring Robert Pattinson that is coming out in the next couple of years, I feel like that might tie back to that. And so that's probably why it was included. But it also I, is a really tender moment, right? right. Yeah. It, it shows that there's still tenderness and, and kindness in Arthur. He just wanted to make this kid, this kid he doesn't know and could possibly be his brother, smile. You yeah. know? It was I, it was really sweet. And I agree with you. Did it need to be as long as it was? Maybe not. But even if you, you just went through and shaved off 30 seconds in different places, you could have easily made it tighter. It doesn't have to be a whole scene. Yeah, I agree. Great. I think it's time for our ratings. I'm going to give this one... 4.5 out of 5 clown masks. Um, I'll give this one 4.2 out of 5 Gotta be exact. illegal guns. I will give this one 4.456 out of 5. Even more exact. Uh, pillows to commit matricide. Damn. All right, guys. <laughs> My final thought on this movie was I. it's truly a cinematic achievement that Joaquin Phoenix in this role managed to have his shirt off more than any Brad Pitt or Matthew McConaughey movie of the last 20 years. Yeah, agreed. And I heard that he only ate an apple and a couple pretzels every day in order to get that body. So that's commitment. So speaking of that commitment, uh, Oscar nom? 100% yes. From I mean, me. if JLo is going to get an Oscar nom, why not Joaquin Phoenix? I, I, what, yes. Guys, this might be the year of the genre film getting its due at the Academy Awards. Just saying. I definitely think so. Well, that's going to be it from us, from the Cynical Podcast. We're your hosts, Will, Malika, and Klesia, and I hope you join us next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Yeah. Deuces. Deuces.